You know, I was driving, as I was driving here this morning, in, in my head complaining about how cold it has gotten so quickly. I happened to turn my eyes uh, uh, just a little bit to the left of, of where I was driving between Rising Sun and the Conowingo Dam, those small hills. And I caught sight of something that literally left, just took my breath away. It was just kind of modest house, but behind it, to, to my left behind it, there was, a, there is a, a shed that's kind of painted a barn red and a tree one of, I don't know what kind still have their leaves, but this one still has its leaves, and they're a beautiful, beautiful deep red. And just in that space, that tree was overhanging the shed, and just in that space, the clouds had opened, and the sun had captured just that little piece. And I, I felt this moment of, of joy, it just was so beautiful, like the old Technicolor movies. Some of you remember those, right, where the colors were just so bizarre and beautiful. And I felt this gratitude, because had I driven five minutes earlier or later, that wouldn't have been there. But maybe somebody else would have seen it. So our spiritual theme for the month of November is attention. And this morning, we're going to explore together how it is or whether even we have a choice as to how we deploy our attention, or is it deployed for us by the world in which we, world in which we live. So that's what we're going to be talking about and how precious our attention is. Our invocation this morning comes from the Reverend Manish Mishra Marzetti, and it is in the anthology called Voices from the Margins, and this is called Harvest Time. Let us ground ourselves, he says, in this season. Ground ourselves in this time and space. Winter is near upon us, our last task before it is the harvest. Seeds have yielded all manner of fruit, all manner of consequences. And now we enter this sacred space, bringing our whole selves, the parts we like and the parts we do not. We come together, each with our own harvest, seeking here a word of comfort an experience of beauty, inspiration to guide us. So let us ground ourselves in that purpose, ground ourselves in body and soul. Winter is near upon us. Sunlight gives way to night. The coldness grows closer. Gathering together, we seek warmth in another's company. We seek the eternal light that permeates us all. Whatever your harvest, whatever your pain or joy, here you are welcome and you will be held. Let the warmth flow to you and through you. Feel the healing strength of this community and know 
that here you are not alone, that here you have found companions for the journey. Grounded in that spirit, the spirit of thanksgiving, come, let us worship. Open Eyes by Reverend Victoria Safford. To see, simply to look and to see, is an ethical act, an intentional choice. To see with open eyes is a spiritual practice, and thus a risk. For it can open you to ways of knowing the world and loving it that will lead to intentional consequences. The awakened eye is a conscious eye, a willful eye, and brave because they see things as they are, each in its own truth, will make you very vulnerable. Think of yourself as a prism made of glass, reflecting everything exactly as it is, unable to exist dishonestly reflecting beauty where there's beauty, violence where there's violence, loveliness and unexpected joy where there is joy, violation where there's violation. Here's the front page of the paper. Here's that seedy, gossipy conflict at your job. Here's a memory unblurred by wishful thinking. Here's a perfect afternoon in the spring and buds now on the trees, and blackbirds in the marsh. Here's the world, just as it is. Now look. That kind of seeing is a choice, and it is a sacred practice. And then there is refraction, taking into yourself as a prism takes in light. The truth of what you see and hear, and transforming it somehow, changing its direction, acting on it, rendering it somehow anew. That again is holy work. The spring day received comes out again as gratitude, dispersed into a spectrum, a sorrow, yours or someone else's, fully realized and received, not denied, not covered up, not justified or explained away, ignored. Some sorrow, clearly, bravely seen, is taken in, absorbed and felt, and reemerges, bent now into compassion. To see clearly as an act of will and conscience, it will make you very vulnerable. It is persistent, holy, world-transforming work. This is from something called The Value of Sparrows by Joyce Rupp. When I deliberately pause to look and listen to life around me, I discover an amazing harmony within myself and all of creation. It's not always easy to stop, of course. I may be able to slow down my body to sit relatively still in a lawn chair or at my desk. I even may be able to lie down on the grass or lean against a tree or sit by the seashore. But even then, 
Even then, my mind and emotions can keep careening along, worrying at a dizzying speed due to my habitual pattern of constant activity and stress. I'm too used to gobbling down my food, driving numbly through traffic, working feverishly while waiting for an appointment, thinking about tomorrow as I stand in line at the store. There are times when my life rains a zillion details and I'm so absorbed that I miss most everything and everyone. Situations when I'm so intent on being with someone in pain or so absorbed in my own hurt or sadness that I turn all my senses away instead of toward what is happening to, happening to me and to life around me. And then there are those moments when I'm just too weary, too worn out to even care whether or not I'm aware. Or those times when I'm full of judgment, judgment about someone or something, or I miss the connections. But this is also true. No matter how pressed my life or how fraught with difficulty, I do eventually wake up. My desire to be aware is restored most days, often through finally stopping or being stopped by the sheer magnificence of creation. I have been ambushed by the power of the moon held captive by fireflies dancing at dusk, bowled over by wobbly white shoots beneath a rock, pushing their way out to life, moved to tears by the sight of a small finch falling from the roof. I have lain on the picnic table and gazed at the stars in sheer ecstasy until I thought the only option for my heart was to die at that moment. When I have freed my spirit to become aware, I have never failed to find meaning and hope, gratitude and peace, comfort and encouragement. So I was reading the New York Times this week, something which I have to do <laughs> mindfully, shall we say. But I learned about this man called, and the, all, those of you who speak German, please forgive me, because I'm sure I will butcher his name, but it's Lasse Reingans, I think is how you pronounce it. And he's an entrepreneur in Germany as a small firm. He has 16, 16 employees. And he's making a bet that his business will succeed in a whole different way from most businesses. So here's how it goes. His employees work five hours a day. They go in at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they leave at 1. And when they leave, they are not expected to do any work whatsoever until they come back in the following morning. Not only that, but when they get to work, they surrender their cell phones 
Already I'm feeling separation anxiety. <laughs> they surrender their cell phones and there is no, on the internet that they have in their workplace, all social media sites are blocked. Huh? Feeling the pain yet? Also, they check their emails twice a day. So the bet, the bet is that five hours a day, focused attention on work, on the tasks of the workplace, will be enough to get the job done. You think they're right? Me too. <laughs> Me too. Now, it means that occasionally, clients and customers are not going to get responded to right away, right? Occasionally, things are going to fall through the cracks, but we all know that they fall through the cracks anyway, even when we are into this kind of sacrificial model of 24-7 working, 24-7 connectivity, 24-7, not obsession, that's not the right word, but a 24-7 expectation of being on, whatever, whatever that means. Another experiment was carried out by Microsoft Japan last summer. Their experiment was, it was a little bit different, but it had some, some similarities. What they did was that they shortened the work week to four days. So employees only were asked to work four days a week, and they were paid for five. So they didn't have to work longer days, they just worked four days. All meetings, this was mandatory, were shortened to 30 minutes. Oh, by the way, Mr. Reingant's meetings, 15 minutes. <laughs> German efficiency, honestly. And so what happened, according to the results of this experiment with Microsoft Japan, which now they're going to expand, well, according to their data, their productivity jumped by 40%, and their electricity bill dropped by almost 25%. Those aren't bad results from, for, for an experiment. So back to this kind of sacrificial model. Now I have a, 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 one of my children works in Silicon Valley. And she'll often say to me that she just, she can't find a work-life balance. And what she's really saying is that she can't find, it's really hard to find life outside of work. Because you guys know, right? I mean, if you, you've probably seen it in movies if you don't know from your own experience, but this, again, this expectation. And, and if the bosses, which, um, which are, are known in some places as the nerd gods, if the nerd gods don't li leave until 10 p.m., well, what are the entry-level folks supposed to do? Right? You can't leave before the, the boss leaves. So the system, the system perpetuates itself. And the fact of the matter is, I think we all know this, our attention is finite. I mean, if, if you all can pay focused attention to something for 10 or 12 hours a day, 
or 15 or 16 as some of these, you know, some of our, our workplaces require. I'm, my hat's off to you. But most of us can't. It's just, it's unsustainable. And what happens, this is what I've been reflecting on a great deal, and it's, what it's, really, it's really what I want to lay in front of you this morning and invite all of us to, to reflect on. I think what happens in these kinds of environments that are obviously heightened by you know, our digital devices and this kind of sense of 24-7 global, global connection, what happens is that our attention doesn't be, ceases to be our own, ceases to be a commodity that we employ but rather a commodity that is being manipulated by others. I want us to think together, because this is an, it's a social question, it's a spiritual question, it's an emotional question, but it's also a faith question. What if or how would it be if we deployed our attention, if we paid attention according to our values? How would that change not only the way we live, but the way we feel? I don't know about you, but sometimes my life feels like a, a, a non-stop whack-a-mole exercise, <laughs> right? And, and it, that's true in part because I'm one of those people who notices things, right? I just notice things. I have like, I feel <laughs> 360 emotional vision. <laughs> my kids hate that, but I do. I've always been envious of people who can be oblivious. That's a fact. But, but there can be this almost habit-forming thing of paying attention, waiting for the next thing to pop up to take our attention. Laura and I were briefly talking about this morning, that this morning. You know, the, the next ping from the text message or the, the headline coming in or the Fitbit that goes off with a blah, 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 you haven't done your steps yet. Blah, blah, blah. Mine doesn't really make that noise, but that's what it feels like. What would it be if we deployed our attention according to our values? What do we actually value? And how much are the distractions taking away, even from our sense of agency, our understanding that we have control? Because we do. We generally have more control that we think, than we think we do. One can turn off these devices. I forget which, which late night TV host was saying, you know, the tobacco companies just wanted your lungs. These people want your soul. <laughs> I'm putting it down now. 
how do we live our values through our attention? Understanding that not only is our attention precious to us, but it may very well be the most valuable commodity on the planet right now. And sadly, the profit doesn't come to us. It comes to what, what some contemporary authors call the, the attention merchants. Anybody heard that phrase? Attention merchants, the attention, the attention economy. So I want to share with you that even though it might feel as though the attention merchants are this brand new, shiny, and despicable phenomenon, they're not. Attention merchants have been really critical to the development of our republic almost from the beginning. In 1833, a young man called Benjamin Day decided he wanted to start a newspaper in New York City. Now, there were several newspapers already in New York, and they were largely published by members of the either the merchant elite or the political elite. And they cost, on the average, six pennies each, six pennies a day, which was expensive. So it, they weren't readily available. I mean, they cost as much as, you know, other, other necessities. Well, Benjamin Day had a different idea. He had actually worked in, in newspapers, but now he had a printing business. And he wasn't interested in conveying information. He was interested in promoting his, his printing business. And so he started a newspaper, and it really was him. I mean, he was the printer, the editor, the publisher, the writer. I mean, he was, he was everything. He started a newspaper called The New York Sun. And his business model was dramatically different from the model of current newspapers at the time. Because he understood that he wasn't selling information to subscribers or to readers. He was selling readers to advertisers. I get the difference? Okay was selling the attention of his readers to advertisers. So the kinds of stories that he decided to put in his newspaper had less to do with the exchange of information and more with getting the attention of the people who bought the New York Sun. So he did two things. He lowered the price of his newspaper to one penny a day, which didn't come close to covering the costs of publication. See, like Mr. Reingantz, he was making a bet on a new business model. And then he started going to the police courts in New York City and writing down the terrible stories of human tragedy that were being recorded in the police courts suicides, homicides. He would go view the bodies and describe them. 
Even though New York had outlawed chattel slavery, the state still respected, quote unquote, the rights of those who came from slave-owning states. And so there were, there were stories about runaway slaves. There were stories which he faithfully transcribed into his newspaper. Before long, he was making enough money to hire the first reporter who he sent to all other courts in the area. Within a year, he had half a dozen competitors who were copying his business model. And so at that point, he had to do something different. So the New York Sun published early, I believe, in 1834, published a story that purported to come from a journal in Edinburgh, Scotland. And this was a story of a prominent astronomer from Edinburgh, Scotland, who had moved his telescope to the Cape of Good Hope in order to observe life on the moon. And life on the moon was beautiful. He described the canyons. He described the valleys. He described the sunlight and the atmosphere had a pink haze. He described these creatures who were large and beautiful and they flew. They had an enormous wingspan and when they landed, they looked human. And over a series of five to eight articles, people were so entranced, they actually would gather in huge crowds outside the newspaper office waiting for the new issue to come out. And by the end of that series, Mr. Day had over 20,000 subscribers, more than any other newspaper in the world. When the attention merchants are in charge, we get mightily entertained, and the truth becomes collateral damage. You know this, right? You know this. We know this. We know this viscerally. Not only does the truth become collateral damage, but freedom of thought becomes collateral damage. And the lines, the lines have always been blurred. I mean, we think they're blurred now, but they've always been blurred. Because this vicious cycle of, of attention getting and our attention being captured and these things that are being, these, these ways that are being de deployed, because if, if an attention merchant can keep our attention for a half a second longer that translates into power and profit. And we are a faith that centers truth. We center a responsible and free search for truth and meaning. And I think it's 2011 or 2012, Disney World hired a uh, 
researcher and writer from the Harvard Business Review, and a cultural anthropologist. What a team. To come down to Disney, what they wanted to know is which of their attractions and their events would most captivate the attention of infants and toddlers. Yeah. You know what they found out? The one thing that most captivated infants and toddlers was the cell phones of their parents. <laughs> Why do you think that is? Because that's what their parents were paying attention to. And what does an infant or toddler want? <laughs> or an old lady want? <laughs> we want attention. We want the attention, the undivided attention of the people we love and who love us. So that's what I'm surprised they haven't created, you know, a whole cell phone theme park. But maybe that's maybe that's there, and I just haven't seen it. Our attention is precious. It's precious, and as the reading that Laura selected and shared with us, our attention is sacred. Our attention, when it aligns with those things that we value and those things that we believe, when, when it aligns with love, when it aligns with justice, when it aligns with truth, not only does it benefit us more and center us more, center us in this moment, but it removes, it removes those, those, that feeling of being a victim to this kind of compulsive connection. I'm not arguing that all of us are hopeless cell phone addicts or that we're all, you know, I mean, the occasional clicking on a you know, recipe for scalloped potatoes and then waking up half an hour later watching cat videos. Okay, that can happen to all of us. <laughs> but as long as we don't do that before noon, we're okay, right? <laughs> I draw the line at cat videos, and you all know my standards are not high. <laughs> but still, still, my beloved, it's worth taking the time to reflect. It's worth taking the time to reflect. Who owns our attention and why? Ashe, amen, and blessed be.